Thanks, Scott. Before we dive into Luke 15, let's just take a moment, go back to prayer again, asking the Lord to open our eyes to see truth from his word, open our ears to hear it, and to give us humble hearts to receive it and be changed by it. I'll pray those things for you. I'd ask you, you pray them for yourself. Father, we, we come to you grateful for your word, grateful for the truths it reveals, how great you are and how weak and needy we are. As we come to it, we ask, Father, you would open our eyes to see these truths in your word. We ask you would open our ears that we may hear them. Give us humble hearts by your spirit that we may receive the word implanted in our souls and be changed by it. Bring us to repentance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here in Luke 15, we find perhaps the most well-known parable in all the Bible, where Jesus engages in a masterful level of storytelling. He draws in the audience with a compelling story, and and yet at the end, stings the audience with a a shocking conclusion. The context is, is important for us. There's two groups of people that are around Jesus as he begins to tell this story. There's the, the sinners and the tax collectors on the one hand. They're known for their radical immorality. That's, that's the one group. But there's also the, the Pharisees and the scribes, or what maybe you've heard said, the teachers of the law. This group is known for their extensive morality. And yet, both groups are spiritually lost. We read in verses 1 and 2, look back at this with me. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You see see the two groups laid out there. And Jesus is marked by outreach to sinners, fellowship with sinners, and calling sinners to repentance. You see, his, his proximity with the, with the sinners, with the bad people, is what starts the narrative. And that the quote-unquote good people are upset about that. I, w- I wonder at the outset, even those, those three things that mark Jesus, a, uh, a outreach to sinners, a fellowship with sinners, and calling them to repentance. Of those three, I would just wonder, as you begin to kind of think about yourself in a reflective way today, where did you need to grow? Do you need to be more concerned with reaching out to people who are outside the church? Or maybe you have some relationships with them, but you just need to spend more time with them, share meals with them. Or maybe say, Justin, I do both of those things well, but boy, I sure do struggle to call people to repentance, to proclaim the gospel, to tell them who Jesus is. You see Jesus doing all three of those things here. And And here we are in 2022, 12 days into Pride Month, and it seems to me that there couldn't be much more pertinent or relevant story for us to look at given our particular context. Because one group says the right way to live is through moral conformity and traditional values and any other way should be rejected. And the other group says the right way to live is through self-discovery and throwing off traditional values and no other way is acceptable, must be rejected. And what Jesus does in this story is he actually confronts both ways as wrong. He says that any identity that's not deeply grounded in God's grace to sinful humanity will never be satisfying. So he tells three stories with one main point. 
And maybe you've heard these stories sort of separated and pulled apart, but they actually go together. It's like there's one melody, and you hear the same melody coming through three different instruments. And at the very end, it builds into a beautiful crescendo where you hear the harmony of all three at the exact same time. You've got to understand all three parables or all three stories within this one parable together. So if you take the, the whole sermon, the whole message of Luke 15 into one sentence, you might say it's this, that God's extravagant grace transforms those lost in moral conformity and those lost in immoral self-discovery. See, God's extravagant grace is needed to transform those who are lost in moral conformity and to transform those who are lost in immoral self-discovery. Or to take the, the, the uh, series here, the parables, truth, truths hidden in plain sight. The truth hidden in plain sight in Luke 15 is that repentance is needed both for the moral person and for the immoral person. Both need repentance. And we, we live in a day and an age where there's a cultural message being proclaimed that being a pretty good person, a pretty decent person is the goal. I was just driving around the other day and I heard a, a Walker Hayes song come on the radio. He said, I'm just trying to keep my sons out of jail, trying to get to church so I don't go to jail, trying to write a song the local country station will play. I'm just trying to stay out of AA. I'm just trying to be a decent person, pretty good guy, keep my kids from going off the deep end, try to get to church every so often when I can. And, and it's as if in this parable, Jesus is saying, yes, it's good not to be in jail, and yes, it's good to go to church. And yes, it's good to stay out of AA. Walker, you're right in all of those ways. But you can do all of those things and still be spiritually lost. That's what Luke 15 is telling us. And so this morning, we'll see kind of a three-part outline. We'll see first two lost items, and then two lost sons, and then one really gracious father. So if you're taking notes, that'll be our outline. There are two lost items, two lost sons, and then one gracious father. So we'll start with the two lost items. I'll be pretty brief here as the passage is actually brief here, and then we'll spend extended time on the two lost sons. But it starts with a lost sheep. There are 99 that are still found, one that is lost. And, uh, and this particular story would have appealed to the men of that day, who likely would have been the shepherds out seeking the lost sheep, but even as this story would have been more appealing to the men, everybody would have known that sheep are stupid. The point was to see, man, we ought to pity this lost sheep. And just to help us recognize that the stupidity of sheep in ways that are not as obvious to us would have been abundantly obvious to them, this little 15-second video I think might help you just to, to picture the stupidity of sheep a bit. You see, the, the, that sort of picture is what was so obvious to the initial readers. Like, look, I can get the sheep out of the hole the first time, but as soon as I get him out, he's getting right back to it again. And so there, there's pity of like, oh my word, this guy is never going to find his way home. I've got to pick him up and I've got to carry him home, right? And, and so Jesus tells that and, and what's, you know, the, the video helps us to see they would have known immediately and recognized these things. But then he goes to a parable of a lost coin, which would have appealed more to the women as they would have been prim primarily working in the home and looking for this. 
Yet everyone in the audience would have known the value of the lost coin. Oh, yes, it's, it's so easy to see. Yes, we prize that coin. We've got to go and search and find it. And so on the one hand, there's pity for the lost item being evoked in the sheep, and at the same time, prizing it and seeing its value. And both of the listeners are seeing, yes, I should be pitied for the bad circumstances around me and prized for the good in me. We sort of do that, don't we? I should be pitied for the bad things happening to me and prized for the good I'm doing in the world. And yet that's not the point at all that Jesus intends to make. In fact, if you look closely at the things that are repeated, the point is to say Jesus has this great joy in seeking and finding that which is lost. So you look back at verses 5 and 6 with me. See the repetition of joy and rejoicing. Verse 5, we read, And when he has found it, this being the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The rejoicing, the joy comes, I sought it, and I found it, and I brought it home. And then drop down to verse 9 in Luke 15. Here we see the same theme from the the story of the lost coin. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. You see, right at the outset, Jesus has told two stories that appeal to both the men and to the women, those who work in the home and those who work outside the home, telling them they should both pity that which is lost and prize that which is lost. And yet at this juncture, it's not a super personal story. It's something where the the audience is like, oh yeah, that's right, I should pity that sheep. Oh yes, I should prize that coin. We should do something about it. And the attentive religious listener The attentive one would have known it's actually my job. I've been called to go seek that lost sheep, to go search for that lost coin. Yet none of the audience is a particularly attentive listener because they're so focused on justifying themselves. Had they been more attuned to the scriptures, they would have remembered what the prophet Ezekiel wrote. We see it on the screen here, telling them of their duty. This is Ezekiel 34. We read, The weak you have not strengthened, The sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. You skip a few verses and it says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. He's saying, yes, you should have done this, you didn't do this, and so I will seek them out. But because both listeners are still focused on justifying themselves, it's unlikely that either heard that message at this point. The religious moral conformity group is still mad at Jesus for being so close to the immoral group. The immoral self-discovery group is still consumed by pursuing their own lustful passions. And so while Jesus has told two quick stories that paint the picture in broad strokes, he moves to a more personal and more intimate story that will grip them moving forward. This brings us to the second point, the the two lost sons. There's two lost items, a, a sheep and a coin, and it comes to two lost sons. 
And whereas we pitied the sheep and prized the coin, the audience is invited to identify with one of the sons. I'd invite you, even as we move into this point, to identify yourself. Which of these sons am I like? Here's where we, we really see the masterful nature of Jesus' storytelling sort of going next level, right? Good, solid introduction, Jesus. Nice job. And here's where it goes next level. He starts with the younger brother. The younger brother represents the tax collectors and the sinners. Or, or in 2022, you might say the younger brother represents those leading the charge for Pride Month. That, that's the picture there. And so you can imagine from the, from the moral group, from the religious group, the anger and the angst and the frustration they feel as this younger brother is referenced. We pick it up in verse 12. Look back at your copy of God's word. We read, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. It sounds like a, a benign request in some ways. It's actually a shocking request. Because the, the inheritance coming to the younger son is actually the land that the father owns. It requires the father to sell the estate, or at least a portion of it. He's implying, Father, I wish you were dead and I could just have your stuff. Maybe you can imagine something like it. You've been over to Grandma's house and she has this expensive this table. It's an antique. It's in pristine condition. And her favorite thing to do is have everybody over for Sunday lunch on this beautiful table and with her favorite china. And it's the high point of her week. And you decide, you know what, Grandma, I know you love this table, but... I'd really like to go to the Caribbean and take a, a cruise. So, so we're just gonna liquidate this thing and sell it and get rid of all of your china as well so that we can get bumped up into first class. And I, I'm sure we can go to like Walmart and get you like a card table and chairs and we can still come over and hang out. But it would be better if you just kind of move on and get out of the way, Grandma, so we can liquidate your stuff and we can go do what we want with it. You're thinking, who in their right mind would have the gall to be such a ignorant jerk? No, don't do that. What's wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? You're lost, man. You have lost touch with reality. What it tells us is this younger son, even while he's still at home, was already spiritually lost. He's already lost. He wanted dad's stuff, but had no interest in a real relationship with his dad. And so frequently, this describes how we can operate. We say to God, God, give me all of your blessing, I'm not really that interested in fellowship with you, in daily time with you, in opening your word, and in prayer, and being with your people. See, it's really easy for us to have a prodigal's heart without ever leaving the home of the church. It's very easy for our hearts to be gripped by worldly pleasures despite sitting in a church pew. Friend, just recognize how easy it is for your heart to be governed by dreams of, of sexual escapades, for your, your heart to be governed by dreams of lavish vacations or powerful friends or financial conquest, all while it looks like you're still at home like this younger brother was here. So you can be saved from those things by the grace of God and yet still find a battle raging fiercely in your soul to believe that a relationship with the Father is more valuable than the Father's stuff and his blessings in every single one of our hearts. 
But this son isn't just lost at home. He picks up and he moves. And he finds himself lost in a far country where he has great dreams of of throwing off all the backward ways of his hometown and his father and and creating a new self and and living out all the dreams he'd ever wanted. We we pick up in verse 13 of Luke 15. Here's what we read. Not many days later, pause, he's in a hurry to get out of there. As soon as you sell that stuff, man, as quickly as I can get loaded up, I am out of here. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. We see him moving as far away from the father as he can. In geography, he goes to a far country. In where he finds pleasure and in everything he's pursuing. I want to get as far away as possible. But notice he's lost because he's looking for the wrong object of pleasure, not the wrong amount of pleasure. He thought, man, dad is not giving me enough good things, and if I go find more good things or better things than what he has to offer, then I'll be happy. And there's no amount of pleasure that can overcome seeking pleasure in the wrong place. It's critical for us to see that. And he comes to this severe famine after living a reckless lifestyle, and that's a really bad combination. It reminds me a little bit of maybe the the 2008 crisis. Right where, where you've, you've got people making some bad decisions on, on what mortgages ought to be granted, and then you come to a financial famine of sorts, you might say, at the exact same time. You put those two together, and it's a really bad situation. We encounter serious need like we didn't think we'd encountered before. So what does he do? He goes and hires himself out. He works for this pig farmer. And at that time, pigs were the lowest of the low. They were unclean. Right, that was the, the lowest of rungs, per se. And it wasn't just that he was working for a pig farmer. It wasn't just that he was wrestling pigs. Was he didn't even have money to eat, and he wished he could be fed with the food the pigs were eating. It's the, the picture of despair and need. So he's lost at home, and he's lost in the far country, and he doesn't know what's going on. And he realizes, this isn't working out. I need to come back home. And so he starts to make this journey of repentance. And even as he steps back to his dad, we see a picture of him being lost in his repentance. Lostness all the way around. Look look at verse 17 with me. We'll read through verse 19. We read, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Say, Justin, that sounds pretty good. How could we say this younger brother is lost in his repentance? He seems to be on the right track. And I'll grant there are some good elements here, right? He recognizes his sin and he calls it sin. He recognizes his sin is against God and against his dad. He says, I've sinned, Father, against heaven and against you. He recognizes that he's the one to blame. He doesn't make excuses. 
He doesn't blame it on his circumstances. So there's certainly some good elements here. But what is it that's actually pushing him to repentance, to come back home? It's what he can get. I'm hungry. I want more food. I know where I can receive the blessing. And then, even maybe make that, making that point a little bit more explicitly, a little bit more clearly, he says, Father, treat me as one of your hired servants. The hired servants didn't actually live on the property. They would have lived in town. They would have been paid a wage. In essence, the son is saying, Dad, I know I've accrued a debt that's great. Let me come back and work for you and start to pay off my debt one paycheck at a time. I don't know if I can ever get back, but I want to work my way back into your presence. Hire me. Let me work in town. I'm not going to come into your home, but I'm going to try and work my way to you. You see, he's taken radical steps to find pleasure in what looks good, and yet he found it really unsatisfying. He's come up empty. And so he says, I'm going to come back home, and I'm going to live a a simpler life, where I, I know I'll probably never have much, but I'll live close to dad, and I can try to at least be a hardworking, contributing member of society. And I can try to pay back my debt, even though I probably never will. He's growing in wisdom, but not necessarily spiritual maturity because he still thinks he can work his way to the Father. And all all over our our culture today, we see a similar impulse that maybe I need to set aside these other crazy dreams and just have a simpler life and that's where where there's actually satisfaction. Right, it was the the, the profound theologian, Leonard Skinner, that told us this. He said, or they said rather, forget your lust for the rich man's gold. All that you need is in your soul. And you can do this, O oh babe, if you try. All that I want for you, my son, is to be satisfied. And then everybody sings and be a simple man. And, you know, we, we go from there. And it, look, the point is what, what Leonard Skinner missed, but Jesus didn't miss and Jesus taught is that satisfaction isn't found in lavish living any more than it's found in simple living. That lasting satisfaction is only found in a real relationship with the Father, with God. And the younger son hasn't yet repented of pursuing life apart from God. He's just pursued satisfaction in a different kind of materialism, a different kind of worldliness where he can still earn his way. As the the story progresses, the prodigal comes home and he tries to begin this confession to the father. He gets mid-sentence and the father interrupts him to throw this great party saying, my son has returned. And as the celebration gets started and it gets to be loud and everybody's partying, the the elder brother, he hears of the commotion and he, he wonders what's going on. So in just a minute, we'll focus in on this party But for now, I want to move ahead to Jesus' words where we start to see the response of this elder brother being symbolized and told about, the second lost son. You see, sometimes the story's told like this sentimental forgiveness tale where there wouldn't have been a dry eye around Jesus as if the prodigal son is really the lost one. That's not actually correct. You see, both sons are spiritually lost. The elder brother represents the scribes, the Pharisees, the the teachers of the law, the moral and religious leaders of the day. And as the story builds and unfolds, the religious audience, audience realizes that Jesus is saying, you're just as lost as the younger brother that you are ready to condemn. 
Look back at verse 25 with me. We'll, we'll read up through verse 30, about six verses here. Here's what Luke 15 says, starting in verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Here we find the, the pinnacle of Jesus' master storytelling. He tells the story to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. And his point is to highlight their lostness. The whole, the whole story has been building to this point, to the climax to say, yes, I'm actually telling you a story about you. We see the, the elder brother saying, I've worked hard, I've kept the rules, I've served you all these years. And he's angry. He won't even refer to his brother as his brother. He says, Father, this son of yours. He's furious. You see, despite staying at home, He's just as lost as his brother who left home. As the younger brother wanted the father's stuff and not a relationship with the father, so the older brother also wanted the father's stuff and not a relationship with the father. Because he's been with the father the whole time and he complains, he says, you never gave me even a goat. I didn't even have to have the, the fattened calf. I didn't have to have a steak dinner, but chicken tenders would have been nice. You wouldn't even give me those. I want your stuff, not you. And just as the younger brother wanted to work off his debt and earn his way, so the older brother boasts in his work as if he's building up a credit. They're both lost in wanting dad's stuff without a relationship with dad. They're both lost in thinking they can earn their way into good standing. Their obsession with doing good things and with the father's stuff actually kept them from loving the father. And it can be sort of obvious to us when we're living out a younger brother kind of lifestyle. That's, that's fairly straightforward. You know when that's happening. But what does it look like to be an elder brother in our context? It's certainly more, more subtle and more difficult to see what's going on. Where you find your identity in doing good works more than being with the father. This shows up when our self-view sort of swings between two poles of self-despair and self-loathing and pride. So I, I, I loathe myself when my moral performance doesn't measure up. I can't stand myself. I despair because my identity is grounded in the things that I do. And when what I do doesn't measure up to my standard, I despair. Actually tells you that your identity is grounded in your works, just like an older brother. Or when you perform well, when you evangelize well, when you forgive as you ought, when you give generously, you tend towards pride, saying, boy, if there were just more people like me around here, if our, if our church had more people who did these things that I'm doing, then we would get there. And you find, again, that your identity is grounded in your actions, just like an elder brother. 
along these lines. Criticism for elder brothers is absolutely devastating because the approval of the father is never enough. You have to have someone else's approval as well. And when you don't have that, when they criticize you, it cuts you off at the knees and you're left with nowhere to turn. This is actually why Paul in Romans 8 would say, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Say, if your identity is grounded in what God has done for you and how you've been justified in Christ by grace alone through faith alone, then who can bring a charge against you? Because that's not where your identity is and what they think of you. But the elder brother says, no, I have to have their approval. The elder brother finds his identity in the father's stuff more than being with the father. We see this when our prayer life is driven more by the things we want God to do for us than adoring him for who he is. Maybe you can start out and you can pray for for 10 or 15 seconds. God, I thank you that you're the creator of all things. I praise you that you're more glorious than anyone else. You're, You're the holiest in all the world. And it's real easy to spend 20, 30 minutes or even five or 10 asking him to intervene and do all this stuff for you. I want to be blessed in this way and in this way and in this way and in this way. And I have an obsession with what the Father can do for me rather than recognizing his goodness above all else. Elder brothers get angry when life doesn't go their way. God, how could you do this? How could you allow this? What's going on here? Don't you see all these years I've served you? I've stayed at home. I've kept all the rules. Elder brothers find their identity in their hard work. They're proud of all these years. At my work, I've given an honest day's work. I've never shorted the boss. I've gone out of my way to serve my direct reports and bent over backwards in ways I don't get credit for. Look at how I've stayed married despite my spouse that's not following Jesus. Look at how I've tried to raise these pretty good kids. We find our identity in our hard work. And you feel that when you start to have disdain for those you perceive as lazy. So go get a job. Be more like me. I've worked all these years. Or or maybe you don't have disdain for the lazy or whoever you deem as lazy, but you idolize overachievers. Somebody who's been able to accomplish a little more than you who advances more quickly than you, and you say, boy, if that's what I had, then I'd be satisfied. Oh, I wanna be like that person. Oh, I wanna hear their input and their thoughts. And because you idolize what they have, you treat them basically like a god. And it reveals I'm an elder brother who's finding my identity in my work and what I've done and what I've accomplished. Friends, it is absolutely astonishing how pervasive and how subtle this can be in religious hearts to find our identity outside of the grace of God. All, catch this, all while doing good things, while living a moral lifestyle. This is why we say it's so important that you repent not only of your badness, but repent of your good works as well. Repentance, that's kind of a a churchy word. It just means I'm facing one way, I have a change of mind, a change of action, and I go the other way. That's what repentance means. So we repent not only of our, our badness like a younger brother, but we must repent of our good works like an elder brother should have as well. That's why Isaiah 64, 6 would say, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
The things we think we're doing that are so good that should be giving us points with God. It's like, no, no filthy rags. Maybe another way of saying that would be this. If you take away all the bad stuff you've ever done and you're left with only the good stuff you've done, God would still be justified in judging you and condemning you to hell because even your good deeds are marred by the sinful motivations that undergird them. So even getting rid of the bad behaviors that you're ashamed of isn't enough because all your righteousness is like filthy rags. Doesn't amount to a hill of beans with God. Say, yeah, Justin, I, I, I don't know. Is this really me? Maybe you start to feel that you're a little bit kinder on Sunday than you are the rest of the week because you really do want to look good at church. You think, man, I I do kind of hope that God's keeping an eye on the stuff I'm doing for him. I get I'm not a Hall of Fame Christian, but I'm at least like a solid role player for the, the church. It means we come together and we must, each of us, daily say, God, I confess that my best service that my most generous giving, that my most gracious forgiveness is all like filthy rags before you. And to me, they look like a a perfectly pressed three-piece thousand-dollar suit. I look at those like, man, I'm I'm getting the job done. But to God, you look down and and you see those as like an old shirt that's stained with dirt and with oil, like I've just been working out under the car, and you think, man, there's nothing here. It's filthy rags. You see, false Christianity looks at this parable, says, wow, don't go crazy like the younger son. That's what false Christianity says. But true Christianity looks at it and says, wow, some people reject God through immorality, but tons of people also reject him through their own morality. And we must all repent of our own efforts to live apart from God's grace and to find satisfaction apart from what he's done in the person, the work of Christ. All of it then is a long way of saying there's more than one way to be spiritually lost. And however your lostness shows itself, the key is to recognize there's only one way to truly have your heart transformed. Because the external behaviors, some look better, some look worse, but you can be lost on both. So how is it that I go beyond the externals and actually have my heart transformed? It brings us to our third point, the gracious father. We've seen two lost items, two lost sons, and and one gracious father. Look look back at verse 20 of Luke 15. We read, he arose, being the younger son, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The gracious father, he runs to meet the younger brother. It's a shocking pursuit. And that day, an older man would never have run. It would have been too disgraceful. Yes, kids would have run. Maybe the women would have run to chase the kids, but never would an older man run like that. Yet it's a, a shocking display of sheer grace. He doesn't let the son begin to open his mouth. He saw him a long way off. He felt compassion. He ran, threw his arms around him, and, and begins to kiss his neck. He doesn't even know what the son's going to say yet but there's joy in seeing him found, extravagant grace. And then verse 28, we see him going out and pursuing the older brother. He says, verse 28 says, but he was angry 
and refused to go in, speaking of the older brother. But his father came out and entreated him. Just as he pursued the younger brother, so he pursues the older brother. This would have been the greatest day of the father's life. I thought my son was dead. He was lost, never to return. He's come back, and I'm throwing the greatest party on the greatest day of my life, and I will willingly leave my seat at the table at the greatest day ever and leave to pursue the self-righteous, vindictive, angry older brother. What an astonishing display of grace. You see, he doesn't greet the self-righteous people with anger like we would. You churchy hypocrites. Look good on Sunday. Don't live like it through the week. No, he, re- he reaches out with grace to those people. But he also doesn't reach out to the immoral idolaters with anger either. Look at how you're destroying the father's property. Look at how you're scarring the family name. No, he doesn't do that. He seeks with gentleness with a generously gracious offer to come and be with him. Friend, do you realize this morning that is how Jesus is still pursuing you? A gentle approach, not anger. Generous grace, not keeping a list of wrongs. Arms extended, not sitting back with his arms crossed waiting for you to come to him. He's seeking you, not waiting for you to pick up the phone. Oh man, what a generous father. And the last two verses end the parable in a somewhat abrupt fashion. It's not what we would expect, so let's look back at them together. Verses 31, 32, we read, and the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this brother, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then it's over. And we wonder, does the elder brother enter and accept the father's invitation? We don't know. Why is there no closure to it? Well, it's a, it's a master job of storytelling where he's inviting reader participation He's inviting the audience to step in and find themselves in the story, knowing that the parable was told to the moral and religious leaders of the day, the elder brothers of the day. He's inviting them in a sort of way to create their own adventure storybook where they can choose the ending. Will you step in and receive the Father's grace or will you continue to identify yourself based on your good works and the things that you've been earning? But for both the younger son and and the older son, the forgiveness, the acceptance they receive is very costly. You'll notice all throughout the sermon this morning, I've been saying sheer grace, but not free grace. Because it is free to them, to the recipient, but it does cost someone. You see, the younger son receives a a signet ring and and a beautiful robe both indicative of being a true son. Costly ring, costly clothing that the father has to pay for and give to him despite not deserving it. And he throws this feast for the whole community with the fattened calf. 
Historians tell us at that time that meat would have been one of the greatest delicacies that was available. It wasn't regular that you would eat the fattened calf. In fact, the elder brother even says, I just wanted a goat, the cheap meat. And that would have been a great gift because it wasn't normal to eat that. And so the picture that we get is actually not just that their, their immediate family is partying, but the whole community has been invited for a steak dinner. Exceedingly costly celebration. It's not like you just invited your friends over, or your neighbors over, rather, for you know, grilling burgers or something. It's a nice gesture. It doesn't cost you that much. If you invite your whole neighborhood to Roost Chris on your dime, that's a costly investment of saying, there's a real party, a real celebration to welcome my son in. And that's the picture that we get here. It's expensive. It's costly for the father to welcome the younger son. But it's also costly for the elder brother to be welcomed in. He insults his father. He refuses to participate in the greatest celebration of the father's life. He's implying, Father, you don't actually love me. You just love him, and I should have earned and deserved your love. What an insult. That's why Puritan John Owen would say it this way. He says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father is to not believe that he loves you. And that's exactly what the elder brother lays on the father. Great sorrow, great burden. I don't believe you actually love me. You love him and you should be loving me. And yet, what does the father say? Son, you are always with me. I'll never forsake you. Even in the height of your self-righteousness, even in the height of your pride, even in the height of your foolishness, I'll never stop pursuing where you thought I should have stopped pursuing your younger brother, I didn't, and I similarly will never stop pursuing you either. What a beautiful, beautiful story of grace. So the simple message for us this morning is to recognize a couple of things. Recognize one, God joyfully initiates and pursues us. It is his joy to initiate love and to pursue you and to chase you down. There's nothing you could ever do to work your way to God. You're as lost as a sheep that keeps jumping in the hole. You have no chance of making it back. You're as lost as a dead coin who will never pull its way out from under the cabinets. And yet God is pursuing you. A lesson that we must repent of both our, our goodness and our badness. Because both can keep you from God. I wonder this morning... You see his grace, his outstretched arms. You realize he's not angry at you for being self-righteous and full of yourself and proud of your good deeds. And he's also not angry at you for rebelling against him and choosing to go your own immoral way. His arms of grace are open to all. So repent of both your goodness and your badness and come home to the Father. Of course, that's really hard for us, isn't it? It's easy to think of somebody else that needs to repent, somebody else who checks all the wrong boxes. You go to try to pray that prayer, and all of a sudden your mind gets scrambled with a thousand other thoughts. So what actually draws you in? Well, Romans 2 would say it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. 
knowing there's a warm embrace if I'll merely come. That he's gentle, he's lowly in heart. So recognize that you must be melted, you must be moved by the cost of bringing you home. Seeing the feast prepared, that the Father will never forsake you. Seeing that for, for the younger brother, for the elder brother, we talked about the cost, but for us it was a much greater cost than even a Chris dinner. There's a God the Father would send his son Jesus to this earth condescend out of heaven to leave the perfect party, much greater than any party that the father was having for the younger son, and come to us and condescend, and not just come and be with us, but live the perfect life that we couldn't live, and die the horribly gruesome death that we should have died. For you, he did that. He paid the price on the cross so that you could be brought home so that all of God's wrath would be poured out on him, that God could be just and still welcome you with arms of grace. So that we can sing as the hymn would say, nothing in my hands I bring, not even my righteousness. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. So that we can come home running. The Father's arms they're open wide. You're invited into the story. Will you come home and receive his grace? Let's pray. Father, we're struck by your extravagant grace. Grace that can transform those of us lost in moral conformity and those of us lost in immoral self-discovery. We thank you for the great cost that you yourself paid to bring us home. And we ask, as we think on these things, as we meditate on them, that your kindness would lead us to repentance, that you would melt our hearts and move ourselves towards you with the great love that you have shown on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.